whoever is listening, guys, welcome back. My name is Grayson Mann, and welcome to our midpoint of our Clemson football podcast preview series. This is going to be part five, along with part six coming later this week. Today, we have J.C. Zimball, writer for NC State Rivals. J.C., welcome to the show, man. Thank you for doing this. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. So, J.C., can you just by starting off this podcast, uh, walk us through what your role is with Rivals and currently what you're up to? Because it sounds like based off your Twitter feed, you're at some basketball clinic, I think. No, um, basically, I just had a binge from... July 2nd through July 9th of three days at the Nike Peach Jam, which had all the top uh, Nike kids for basketball. And then that was in North Augusta, South Carolina. And then four days at the Adidas um, event, which was in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And uh, between the two events, I probably ripped through and seen, uh, we'll say maybe 70% of the high major players between Nike and Adidas. That's awesome. So for your role of NC State Rivals, can you walk the audience through what your day-to-day role is, per se, or just kind of what you do on an average day? Well, um, I'm the unique person um, where I do both basketball and football, cover the teams for NC State, and then also cover football recruiting and basketball recruiting. And then every now and then I'll dabble with uh, um, women's basketball or baseball just to, you know, keep my hand in, in the mix of things or um, you know, every now and then, uh, state will have a, a, a superstar girls basketball recruit, um, that people are interested in, uh, this particular cycle, it's Sarah Strong, whose parents are both, uh, South Carolina prep legends in some ways, uh, Danny Strong played at NC State, made the Shrine Bowl in football, Division One basketball player, uh, Sarah's mom is probably one of the top three or four all-time players in the history of South Carolina high school basketball. Went to Harvard, maybe one the best or second best Ivy League basketball player ever, made the WNBA. And then Sarah's top five in the country in the class of 2024. So, you know, between all of that, it keeps me very, very busy. And, uh, you know, some months are, are more hectic than others. Um, you know, June was uh, a mix of basketball events and football camps and football commitments. And then July, the first start of the month was all about basketball recruiting. And then uh, there'll probably be three or four commitments this month. And then they have a big uh, recruiting event um, July 28th called the Alpha Wolf, which will bring in a lot of football recruits to NC State. And then August will come around and it'll be all about team coverage of the football team. And then uh, it gets a little crazier when November hits and both basketball and football are going at the same time. And high school football and high school basketball start up at the are going at the same time. So um, maybe May is a little bit of a quiet month, but usually uh, it's always something to do. Sounds just like it. So let's rewind back to 2022 and just get your impressions. We'll go kind of in a chronological sense from there. So NC State, there was a lot of attention on this team heading into 2022 as a team that could really legitimately compete for the ACC. They had taken down Clemson the year prior, and they had this anticipated matchup in Death Valley that ended up being college game day. And right after that, NC State loses Devin Leary for the season and finishes 8-5. and To you, when you covered this team, what was the impression of NC State for 2022? And how did, in your opinion, they salvage a season where they lose their top player and he ends up transferring out? 
you know, you, you're right on the hype. You know, part of the hype was a few things. You know, it was a perfect storm of having players back because of the COVID year. It was a perfect storm of having some guys not enter the NFL draft because they were injured and really couldn't work out for NFL team. So they came back. So next year now they had like 17 returning starters or something. And my my one hesitation on the hype from at this time last year is that they had the experience and they had productive players, but I didn't know how many NFL future players they had. And that ended up being proven true in the draft when um, some guys just didn't get drafted and Chandler's Avila guard, he was drafted, but uh, some great players, but they were ended up being undrafted free agents and they might make the NFL like Drake Thomas at linebacker or say Christopher Dunn as a kicker. So, you know, but in terms of just pure NFL talent, um, you know, the NFL didn't view the, the Wolfpack the same way as, as maybe all ACC teams did. So the the thing that was a little crazy though is that with all that returning talent and experience, they really struggled again in the, in the opener against East Carolina, and could have easily lost that game if not for ECU missing a field goal. So that was kind of like their first alarm, a little bit alarm bells that went went off is that the offense struggled against ECU in the opener, and then as you mentioned, Devin Leary eventually gets hurt, and they play four different quarterbacks. And, you know, eight and five could have been a lot worse um, in retrospect. Um, but MJ Morris was a true freshman who played lights out against Wake Forest, and that was a big win. And then Ben Finley, who started the year as the first string quarterback, uh, helps NC State beat UNC. And in Wolfpack land, a win over UNC makes for a great year regardless. So, you know, it's one of those deals where that eight and five could easily have been six to six you know, with a break here and there. But, um, you know, the the disappointment then kind of went full circle was how bad the offense was against Maryland in the bowl game. Um, 16 to 12 loss to Maryland, who, you know, I, I, both teams had some guys not play, you know, Maryland had some guys, you know, sit out for the NFL draft. and uh, But the offense for NC State was just abysmal that day, obviously not getting a touchdown. And the Ben Finley that looked great against you. Well, I shouldn't say great. That's a strong word. But the Ben Finley who was effective against UNC was not anywhere near that version against Maryland. And then he ends up transferring after the spring. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, Devin Leary goes to Kentucky. Um, you know, part of that is probably today's world of NIL. The other part is, you know, maybe both sides are just we're ready for a change. So State's uh, <clears throat> offensive coordinator, Tim Beck, gets hired as the head coach at Coastal Carolina. And that gave the opportunity for a revamp on offense, which is, like I said, badly needed. And they end up hiring Robert Denae. And he had been a long time, he's a long time offensive coordinator, but he had just been at Syracuse. And before that, he was uh, with Virginia. And he was tied at the hip with Virginia's former coach, Bronco Mendenhall, for a long time. Uh, between v BYU and Virginia. And then uh, they bring in Garrett Tujay as the offensive line coach from Virginia, who also had been with NA for all those years at BYU and Virginia. So it's a different style. We're talking about more air raid. Um, now, I will say, though, I think one difference with with NA is that 
he'll coach to his talent. So if he has a good running game, he'll, he'll have a nice balanced offense. If it's more about the passing game, he'll air it out. But I don't think he's the the stereotypical air raid guy who, no matter what's going to want to throw the ball 50 plus times. So, you know, he comes in. NC State needs a quarterback to at least balance out MJ Morris. And they end up bringing Brendan Armstrong in. And then that opens up a whole different can of worms because, you know, obviously Armstrong had been with an A at Virginia and he was looking for a new home. And it made sense for him because, uh, as Clemson fans know, the, the Tony Elliott offense, you know, kind of sputtered at, at Virginia this past year. And it wasn't all because of the offense or Brendan Armstrong. Um, you know, it's, I don't think people quite understood the situation in Virginia, but so to give context, Brandon Armstrong in 2021 had a, a terrific statistical season. Um, threw for over 4,000 yards. He runs well, you know, good touchdown to interception ratio. You know, a legit preseason um, all ACC candidate based on his previous year numbers. And, you know, record wise, they, I think they went six and six, and maybe their best win was against Miami. So it wasn't, it didn't, didn't exactly like pay off with like huge victories or anything in 2021. But, um, you know, six and six with Virginia has kind of been what they've been doing. You know, they usually win between six and eight games. And Franco Renan Hall then retires. Next year, you know, the entire offensive line either goes pro or enters the portal. Um, a good tight end was going to be in the draft. He goes, I think, third or fourth round. Um, you know, they didn't really have much of a running game. One of the receivers then got hurt early last year, Billy Kemp. And next year, you know, basically, Brendan Armstrong was playing with a kind of a flex tight end who used to be a quarterback in Mississippi State, who's very good, and then uh, and then a future NFL draft pick wide receiver. And that was it. You know, the, the whole line was not good. The the running back situation was not ideal. And obviously, then they have a tragedy at the end of the year with, with uh, their teammates getting shot and killed, a couple of them getting killed. So what could go wrong basically went wrong. And, you know, I know people want to blame Tony Elliott or Brendan Armstrong or uh, former NC State offense coordinator, running backs coach Des Kitchens, who's the um, offense coordinator at Virginia. But that was just kind of like a perfect storm of how an offense could go downhill fast based on personnel and, and losses. And I watched them play, um, Virginia play Illinois, which was probably like their second game of the season. And, you know, the the dynamic that was interesting there is, you know, Brett Bielema is the head coach of Illinois. He had Dave Dorn of NC State as his defense coordinator at Wisconsin. Uh, the secondary coach, Aaron Henry, played for Dorn and Bielema at Wisconsin, coached under Dorn at NC State, now at Illinois, just got bumped up to defensive coordinator. The NFL draft had three, I think at least three defensive backs from Illinois get drafted high. So very good defense, and they made Brendan Armstrong look bad. And one of the tackles who has since transferred to Boston College uh, who's probably playing like, you know, his first real extensive action that, you know, as a young left tackle, you know, he really struggled, you know, in pass blocking. And I was watching Brandon Armstrong, you know, make poor passes and poor decisions. And um, it just, there was no rhythm. There was no flow to their offense. So you could see 
how things had deteriorated and based on his stats, it didn't really get much better from, from that point on. So now we have this dynamic where he's at NC State and he's reunited with Robert Denae and he has the offensive line coach that he's familiar with, Jerry Tujay. And, you know, they basically gave him the keys to the offense from day one. Um, so MJ Morris, who probably for about a month thought he would be the guy, you know, ended up being um, second string quarterback. And in a perfect world, it'd be great if MJ Morris could redshirt, um, play, let, you know, four games or less and get that redshirt gear. But we'll, we'll see what happens at the moment. They only have three scholarship quarterbacks and one of them is a true freshman, Lex Thomas. So um, I think it would be going to be very hard to get MJ Morris a redshirt gear, but, but we'll see. And they, they, try to get a quarterback as in about a month ago, but he ended up picking rejoining Charlotte where he had been in the past. So, you know, could they still add a quarterback this summer? What clock's ticking? So I don't know. But uh, so that's basically the quarterback spot. So people will be like, okay, you know, the, the, the lazy thought or narrative has been, he's back with his offensive coordinator. Brandon Armstrong is going to put up 2021 numbers again. Everything is going to be great. And I look at it as well, you know, state doesn't have the wide receivers tight ends that Virginia had in 2021 and state should have better running backs than Virginia did in 2021. And we'll see how the offensive line compares between the two. But yeah, I just don't think it's like that simple where Brennan Armstrong all of a sudden becomes a 4,000 yard thrower again. So, um, you know, the gist is, is that he needs to find weapons on offense to throw to and I'm not against the youth movement, which may not pay off this year, but pay off down the road. But they have a true freshman named Kevin Concepcion who uh, played at Charlotte Chambers, and he was a, he's a gamer, uh, more slot receiver who could also do some things on the outside. Uh, they have a, a, I guess you would call him a flex tight end named Javante Vereen, who's basically a, a wide receiver and a you know plays tight end, um, you know listed around six four two ten. Um, you know, but basically his wide receiver size and catches like a receiver and, you know, may not have the 40-yard dash of an NFL wide receiver, but is obviously very fast enough to get by linebackers or safeties as a as a quote-unquote flex tight end. And he's a true freshman from Havelock. They have a, a sophomore named Terrell Timmons, who has proven to be a deep ball guy. Um, and then they have a handful of other guys who have played a lot and could do some things, but it's unknown. Um you know, Keon Lassane is the oldest of the receivers. He's from the Charlotte area, went to Matthews Butler. Uh, Porter Rooks, whose older brother Patrick played basketball at Clemson for a bit. Um, you know, Porter arrived at a lot of fanfare. He's a four-star four prospect by Rivals.com, uh, but he has not completely gone on, gotten untracked in his NCC career. And then uh, and he went to um, Myers Park in Charlotte, played with Drake May and Moose uh, and Muhammad, uh son, Moose. I don't know if he's Moose the third or Moose Jr. But uh and then Julian Gray is a, a, a very fast, shifty wide receiver from another Charlotte area kid from Hopewell High in Huntersville. And maybe this is the year that he can make some things happen. Um, you know, tight end has a little depth with the Seabro twins, um, who who could be effective, but it's just a lot of unknowns, you know. So that that's kind of like, you know, who who emerges as Brendan Armstrong's targets. Is, is one big storyline. Um, running the football, I think they'll be fine. It'll be by committee. Um, it took a little bit of a hit when Demi Sumo Carmbele ended up transferring to Kentucky, where he joined Devin Leary. Uh, 
Um, he would have been one of the three running backs for sure and maybe had the most upside of the three. But uh, now we'll probably be two returning running backs with Michael Allen, who's a sophomore, who uh, came on strong at the end of last year. And then uh, Jordan Houston, who's more of a veteran, uh, good in blitz pickup, catches the ball well, just steady. And then because of Sum uh, Demi Sumo Carnbele's departure, true freshman, or it's at least like it likely will be a true freshman. Um, Hendrick Raphael from Naples, Florida. Uh, it'll be his time to to really emerge. And then, uh, you know, offensive line-wise, they've always been pretty good pass blocking. You know, it, it's always interesting. Fans always like to be critical of offensive linemen. I, I think I've picked up on that with Clemson fans. And <laughs> so, you know, NC State fans are similar. And what I kind of learned is usually it's hard to be both good at run blocking and pass blocking. So State's typically been very good at pass blocking. They don't give up too many sacks. Um, but then people always wish that they were better at run blocking. And it just seems to be hard to be bad, to be good at both. You know, maybe, maybe Georgia can be or, or Ohio State or Alabama, but there's only a few schools that are probably good at both. And for State, it's leaned towards more pass blocking. And um, they have a good, they have a handful of veterans back. Um, Timothy McKay at right tackle, Anthony Belton, who started probably two, first two thirds of the season um, before he, I wouldn't say he got benched, but um, he kind of became more of a rotational tackle at the end. Um, but Belton will be at left tackle, McKay at right tackle. Dylan McMahon has had a lot of experience, but it's been a guard. Now he'll play center. And then uh, the guards will be kind of newish. Um, you know, it could be Derek Eason, who has started in the past. Uh, Lyndon Cooper has done very well. Um, he would be a first first time starter at left guard. Um, you know, maybe not a lot of depth on the O line. So it's one of those years where, you know, if someone got hurt, um, if, if a couple of guys got hurt, um, it would really jumble things up. But uh, they had a transfer from Oregon named Dawson Jeremy Millo, who has uh, a glorious mullet um, <laughs> that he's known for. Um, but he is one of those rare guys who can play all the offensive line positions. Like he actually even played center in the spring game. So he's the ultimate um, Swiss Army knife in case there's injuries because he can play any of the spots. And that's that's essentially what what is going on offensively where, you know, it'd be nice if State could average 28 points a game. Like that'd be a great number. Um, it's just it would be very fascinating to see if they could do it. Yeah, with all the, all the stuff that you've listed out, when we look at the schedule for NC State and the thing that points out to me, and we'll get to that in a second, is they have home games like Notre Dame. They'll play a, a rising Duke team on the road. They'll welcome home a Clemson team that they've been back and forth with. Is there a point on the schedule that you look at when looking towards the future and for the fall that you think, okay, you, you start looking at certain games, you start checking them off the box. This could be a team that they could play really well against. This is a team that'll prove X, Y, Z. What is your impressions of the schedule for NC State? And where do you think is a reasonable expectation for this program? Um, schedule-wise, it's kind of interesting because, you know, for the first time that I can remember, they have two Friday night games in September. Um, so that's a little bit of a twist um, on the schedule, but, uh, which is not great for me covering high school football. But, um, <laughs> you know, but or, or for the staff to be able to go out and cover high school football. Um, you know, first game of the season is against UConn on a Thursday. So, the, so there's another game where it's not the typical Saturday. 
So the the flip at, the flip side of all this is they usually play UNC at the end of the year right after Thanksgiving on a Friday. Now that's going to be on a Saturday. But they'll have three games will either be on a Thursday night or a Friday night. Um, but UConn, you know, team they should beat. Um, team they beat handily last year. Team that I was shocked when they made a bowl game. I mean, and, you know, I thought Jim Moore, I thought Jim Moore Jr. did legit one of the better jobs in college football to get that team into a bowl game because um, he had lost his quarterback before um, he played state or maybe in the first quarter against state or no, I think it was before they played state. It was a Penn state transfer. He got hurt. They lost their running back for a little bit. So I, I was amazed at them um, to squeeze out uh, bowl eligibility. Obviously home against Notre Dame will be the test in the beginning. Um, you know, a good showing there will give hope to the fans. If it ends up being a lopsided defeat, then uh, people will react accordingly. Um, you know, the the one of the Friday games is the Brendan Armstrong Bowl, which is at Virginia, um, September twenty second. That's a must win game, and then uh, a tricky game with Louisville, which you know I'm going to assume Coach Brown's going to have a good offense somehow, some way, and I know he's brought in a quarterback that he had at Purdue, who I believe was at California last year. So, you know, the it, it it's not an easy schedule, you know, and it's funny, like you going in, you're thinking like they're going to end up playing for, like Florida State or, you know, different teams and they don't play Florida State because there isn't a division anymore. But we knew that this year's schedule would be harder than last year's because, as you mentioned, you know, you have Clemson and you added Notre Dame and then you always have UNC. They're going to play Miami. Who knows what Miami is going to look like in November. Um, could be good, could be a mess. I mean, you just don't know. Um, you know, even a trickier non-conference opponent like Marshall's been good. You know, like they're they're not going to be a patsy. And then you know, I've I've been saying for the last year that Riley Leonard of Duke is probably one of the best quarterbacks nobody really talks about, and he's terrific. And what Duke did last year was you know just sort of amazing under Mike Elko's first year. So all of a sudden that game is a lot harder than anticipated. Um, you know, and it's interesting, like, because Drake May casts such a large shadow at UNC, I don't think people understand just how good Riley Leonard is. So, you know, my feeling was that because of the schedule being harder, um, that going eight and five with that schedule would probably be a solid year for NC State. Um, I don't know if the fans would be thrilled with eight and five, but um, I think eight and five against that schedule is better than going eight and five with the schedule they had last year. All right, and I th- I think the um this is a good segue to start talking about, and this has been a common theme throughout this this podcast series is defining expectations because we've had episodes with Florida State writer, we've talked with Duke, we've talked with Wake Forest, and the expectations vary for programs like an eight win season at Wake Forest maybe a really high achievement as compared to Florida state. That's not necessarily where they're shooting for. So with Dave Dorn in this program at NC state, how does this program continue to define success moving forward? I mean, the, the, the goal that has eluded them is that is another, is a second 10 win season. They've never had, they've only had one 10 win where they've won more than 10 games. That was with Philip Rivers, a quarterback many, many moons ago. So that has always been the goal is to, you know, like last year, it just seemed like it was inevitable that they would, could win 10 games. 
and then everything kind of fell apart with the quarterback situation and end up with eight. Um, you know, other years they've come close. I don't think the expectations for this year is 10 wins um, because of all the uncertainty on offense. But that that's always been the long range goal, you know. And, you know, I mean, historically, when you look at NC State's at the last 30 years, you know, they usually win between six and nine games. And they're also one of the rare programs that have won, you know, say nine games with multiple coaches, you know, Tom O'Brien and Dave Dorn and Chuck Amato and, you know, Dick Sheridan, uh, rest in peace this past week. Um, you know, I think even Michael Kane squeezed in the nine win season somewhere along the way, but I'd have to, you know, research that. But they're that rare program where they've won, um, say, nine games with a lot of different coaches. So it's it's proven that, you know, whoever the coach is at NC State, you know, there, there's a certain baseline. And it's usually between six and nine games. Um, you know, the, the 2019 season was the disaster uh, where injuries hit and um, wide receivers went pro early and nothing really worked offensively. And the team really skidded off a cliff. But then it it played a bunch of young guys who were starting, you know, started to be older players last year and still even around this year because of the extra COVID year. And, you know, that's that's also obviously has benefited NC State a lot. Um, you know, I always say expectations. You know, I think that I think the pressure on a program defines a program. You know, Clemson fans expect success. You know, they won't handle a seven win season. That's just reality. They can't, they won't. And they won't put up with that. And, you know, as you mentioned, a seven-win season at Wake Forest is different than a seven-win season at, say, Clemson or, or you know, certain other programs. And, you know, state fans have pressure on the program, but not to that extreme. You know, there's no going to be hot seat calls if a state football coach wins seven games or state basketball coach wins 20 games and makes it to the first round of the NCAA tournament. You know, that that type of stuff, I've never, you know, it's funny the state fans got blamed a lot when Herb Sundek left. And I always felt it was kind of unfair in many ways because they've been as patient as can be with Sidney Lowe as head coach. And then, you know, they would have been just as patient with Mark Goffrey until things spun out. And they've been patient with Kevin Keats. And, you know, on the football side, Dave Dorn's now in his 11th year. And... Tom O'Brien would have had a longer stint if it wasn't for, you know, changes in administration. You know, I'm sure he would have kept on going um, because, you know, Tom O'Brien and Dave Dorn have proven that they can win between six to nine games. So, you know, but ultimately the goal is to get to 10 wins and, and to be in the mix. Um, you know, when the playoffs, you know, get expanded, you know, all of a sudden, you know, teams will have more hope you know, to, to make the playoffs. Um, you know, there's been some talk over the last few years about trying to be a playoff team. But, you know, usually by the fifth, sixth game of the season, that talk kind of goes poof. But when you have 12 teams making the playoffs, you know, and the ACC, you know, it's funny, everybody talks about the ACC and the weaknesses and getting out of the league and whatnot. And there's going to be some second and third place teams in the ACC that are going to make the playoffs. Who, if they were in the SEC, they'd probably be going eight and five because, you know, just the, the schedule difference. I mean, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens to Texas and Oklahoma in the SEC because, you know, it's, it's no, their schedules are going to be no joke. 
Yeah. Uh, great entertainment. Like the entertainment factor of Texas and Oklahoma playing teams will play. Their fan base will love. But those are not fan bases that want to go eight and five, which could easily happen when you play, you know, all the tough teams in the SEC. You know, you look at the ACC, I mean, you know, I mean, there's I mean, every everybody knows that Florida State, Clemson, and Miami have the recruiting advantages. But after that, it's always been wide open and teams pop up. You know, Wake, if Wake Forest can pop up, anybody can pop up because, you know, they don't have recruiting advantages or financial advantages and they're not they're not winning because of NIL. You know, so, you know, the fact that they can do what they've done is, is under both Jim Grobe and, and now Coach uh, Fawson is impressive. And, you know, State's been very steady, um, you know, but Miami's been very up and down. Virginia Tech's on a down cycle. You know, Florida State had some, you know, rudderless years <laughs> up until last year. Um, you know, Miami's been kind of a hot mess. And then UNC is kind of, you know, kind of in the same boat as State where they win their seven, eight games, but they haven't really broken through. So, you know, that that's kind of where expectations are. Where, and maybe it always goes back to the ACC was a basketball league. But on the football side, you know, it just, I've always felt, you know, fans are happy. If, they, if state wins eight nine games makes it to a bowl game beats unc you know that, that makes for you know that makes for a good year and um good off season but you know but in order to get to the 10 win plateau i mean it always comes down to recruiting and uh you know states been very steady with where they usually are in recruiting um you know i think the staff has done some things a little differently where the positioning coaches have really zeroed in on their position recruits, um, where in the past it was more like a regional or area recruiter. Um, but you know, what I've said for probably the last year, the class of 2024 will be defined by who they get at wide receiver. And that goes back to what we talked to earlier. They don't have the weapons at receiver, um, could go with the youth movement, get some guys in 2024. Those guys have a chance to play right away as freshmen and so it'll be another year of a youth movement and then that offense with mj morris at quarterback can you know really be something say by i don't know 2026 you know when they're older um and then people will get excited about the 2026 wolf back with mj morris and a bunch of young receivers you know who have uh proven proven themselves after say a year or two in the program you know defensively you know I've never felt like it's ever really going to fall off. Tony Gibson is a terrific defensive coordinator. You know, they've been able to do a 3-3-5 scheme. Um, the defensive linemen aren't going to put up big sack numbers. Um, you know, defensive ends are typically over 280 pounds and, and kind of play the role of a defensive tackle. Um, so it's not so much having that 250-pound speed guy off the edge. But they've had great linebackers. They should always have good linebacker play. Um, Peyton Wilson is back for his six year of college, which we didn't see coming. But, um, you know, if not for injuries, you know, he'd be in the NFL. And if he stays healthy, he's an all ACC caliber linebacker. Uh, Aiden White is an all ACC corner. Um, interesting mix in the secondary. There'll, there'll be some unknowns of safety, but Shaheen Battle and Aiden White both return at corner. Um, they have a junior college transfer that they think have has uh, potential to really be something at safety. 
uh, Bishop Bishop uh, Fitzgerald. They got an old Dominion transfer named Robert Kennedy who will help out at Nickel. They have some guys who basically have started because of injuries enough to be considered start, almost near returning veterans. Um, Devin Boykin and Jakeen Harris between the nickel and the safety. So they have they have guys. You know, Jalen Scott and Devin Betty have played a lot at linebacker due to Payne Wilson being injured in the past and Isaiah Moore being injured. So uh, I think everybody is back on the D-line except for Corey Durden of note, um, or at least almost everybody but Corey Durden. Uh, C.J. Clark, who has had injuries, will be moved inside to nose tackle. He was a very hyped-up recruit. Um, he has to stay healthy. Um, you know, the death behind him is very young. Savian Jackson, who's had a pair of bad injuries in his career, is back at defensive end. Uh, Davin Van is probably one of the better defensive ends that people don't know about. I think he's an all-ACC caliber player, whether second team, third team, first. I don't know. We'll see about first team, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me, though, if he made at least some sort of all-ACC. And then they have death at the end. Um, Trevally Price has played a lot. Noah Potter comes in, who was Ohio State and Cincinnati transfer. Um, another defensive end. They have a, a Red Hibbler, who's a Juco defensive end. So they got depth. They got numbers. They should have a very good defense. Um, you know, maybe not as good as last year's defense, which was um, quietly outstanding. Um, last year's defense rarely allowed a play over 30 yards, which is very stunning in college football. But they simply did not give up big plays, whether a run play, pass play. Um, like, a, like in my head, I can only think of a few. Uh, like Virginia Tech did a couple deep balls, you know, where it was kind of a jump ball play and guy came down with a catch. But, I mean, there just wasn't very many long plays. Um, you know, one of the few defenses that that stymied um, uh, Drake May in the UNC offense. Um, you know, and then actually probably the team that, that did the best against them was Clemson. You know, Clemson's offense with DJ Ungola, between him throwing the ball and running the ball, particularly running the ball. Um, they were very good offensively that night, and uh, they were one of the better teams against State's defense. But most teams really struggled. Um, you know, they shut down Wake Forest's vaunted offense, um, you know, which was also surprising. You know, so between the Wake Forest game and the UNC game, you know, the the defense, you know, they, like you said, they just they make tackles, they don't give up big plays, um, and they can get off the field on third down. So. You know, they may not have the, the, the absolute star power of, of other defenses, but, um, you know, between Peyton Wilson at linebacker and Aiden White at corner, um, if they get a couple other guys to be all ACC caliber players, you know, they, they should be able to be one of the top probably four defenses, five defenses in the ACC. Um, you know, and then Chris Dunn, who I think I mentioned earlier, you know, he only missed one kick. And, you know, so he's... He's gonna be he's gonna be tough to replace. So they brought in a transfer from Western Kentucky, who uh, had been um, a Lou Groza Award semifinalist in the past, and then they have a, a preferred walk on, or maybe now he's maybe he can even get on scholarship this year. Who knows? But Colin White is, um, I think they're confident in him too. So they have two options at kicker. Caden um, Nuncaster was quite the revelation at punter. Um, their punter got hurt. Next thing you know, this walk-on comes in, gangly 6'5 kid. 
And he was terrific. He shanked like one punt against UNC. That's it. Like everything else was like booming punts. So he proved that he's going to be fine. Um, return game, they'll have to find a punt returner. Could be Kevin Concepcion. It could be Julian Gray. Um, you know, we'll see what happens there. Julian Gray had return kicks. Not, you know, maybe not a, a return game that's going to bust out a 90-yarder and punt return or kick return, but um, should be okay, should be adequate. So, you know, special team should be fine. Defense should be very good. And then the offense will just, you know, <laughs> it's just going to be fascinating to see. Like, can they put points on the board and get to, say, 28 points or in the 30s against some of the good teams? Yeah, it's a wait-and-see type of thing with the NC State team. But something that you mentioned is the word study that comes to mind, especially when talking about this history that Clemson and NC State have had, especially for the last, I want to say, seven years. It, for me, it goes back to 2016, where that national championship team with Clemson barely escapes with a field goal in overtime. 2017, Kelly Bryant comes up to NC State. Him and Bradley Chubb have a thing over a towel. And then you get to 2018-19. It's Trevor Lawrence, ETN. Clemson rolled over pretty much everybody except LSU at that point. And then you get to 21, there's a new guy in town, DJ Uyungale. That does not fall, that does not rise up to the expectations that Clemson fans had, and NC State gets one. And yeah. so this 2022 matchup becomes this really highly anticipated event at Clemson. It was unbelievable on campus that day to be able to experience just what that game day atmosphere was like. Um, just covering it on that day. But what is this? What has this made NC State a tough matchup against Clemson? Because it feels like that's one that people are now circling on the calendar, like they used to circle Florida State. They go, "Oh, we got to watch out for NC State," especially when you go up to to their place. It's a tough place to play. It's a tough environment, and it's always a tough out. Why has that been the case with NC State? I think I think it's because Clemson is the is the litmus game. You know, I think. For years, everybody kind of looked up to Florida State when they were lum humming along. And, you know, you had to get to a certain level to compete with Florida State. And then the ACC kind of caught up to them a little bit. And then they had another great run with Jameis Winston. You know, there was been some years where, you know, State would play Clemson and the game would be over in the first quarter. Or I felt like on the third possession of the game where it's like, oh, Clemson goes up 21 nothing. This one's a wrap. You know, I've seen that especially in Death Valley, you know, between Trevor Lawrence or Deshaun Watson. Um, you know, I think I always point out things changed with Clemson when they brought in Chad Morris. Taj Boyd, I think, picked his third school in his recruitment, which ended up being Clemson. And Sammy Watkins arrived. You know, it's funny. I think, I think people have written about the importance of C.J. Spiller. But to me... For me, from my perspective, I think Sammy Watkins kind of made them cool, you know, combined with DeAndre Hopkins and the, all the other guys that they've had. But for some reason, it just seemed like they became super cool when Sammy arrived. And, you know, Taj Boyd took care of the quarterback spot because I don't know if it was the year before, but I was at Clemson where it was 14 to 13 and neither team could really get to the 50-yard line. It was bad, bad offense. So you know, went from 14 to 13 to, to teams who could, you know, to Clemson teams that could really score. And, you know, I think the the one year State was able to beat them because they played a perfect game. Sammy Watkins was injured, but I don't think it even would have mattered. They just had 
a perfect game. And then obviously the Kyle Bambard year, you know, he misses the field goal. Uh, I believe that was also the game where Wayne Gallman got hurt. So, you know, there was that dynamic where, um, you know, Clemson was on the ropes and Deshaun Watson couldn't run the football as well that day. I think state knew what kind of physicality you had to put, you had to have to play Clemson, um, you know, and then, you know, there's always a little chippiness probably on the recruiting trail. Um, I'm sure hit peak chippiness over the Dexter Lawrence recruitment where Clemson was able to beat out NC State to get uh, Dexter from Wake Forest, which is outside of Raleigh. Um, you know, you always kind of know that Clemson's going to be a factor with about five kids in North Carolina each cycle, um, you know, most most often. And then obviously those five kids are guys at NC State or UNC or other national powers want to, um, you know, this year, not so much putting heads. Um, a little bit with Alex Taylor at wide receiver. Start off a little bit with Jonathan Taylor at receiver, but not, not nothing crazy like on a recruiting trail this year. Um, last year, Sullivan Absher, you know, both stayed in Clemson wanted and ends up picking Notre Dame. Uh, tackle from Belmont South Point. But um, so some of it comes with recruiting, um, you know, but you want to be the best, you got to be Clemson. And it's it's simple. And if I'm the coach at state, I'm thinking about trying, you know, my entire offseason, I'm thinking about what can I do to be Clemson? You know, what what ways can we catch up? Um, I mean, it's just a natural thing. I mean, sure Big Ten teams feel the same way with Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State, and uh USC ruled the roost in the Pac twelve and uh, Texas and Oklahoma are the perceived big boys when they were in the Big 12. So, I mean, you know, you want to be the best, you got to be Clemson. So I think that's where a lot of the, you know, I wouldn't call it a, I don't know. I mean, both teams look at other programs as rivals, but um, obviously there have been some very strong, physical, tough hitting games, you know, and, uh, you know, but what it will be like three years from now, who knows? I mean, that's just college football in a nutshell. But, uh, you know, I mean, I expect NC State to be a tough physical defense against Clemson this year. The question is, will they be able to score enough? And that's that will be the question whenever State plays any good team. So that that's kind of like how I've always looked at the, the NC State-Clemson rivalry. And, um, you know, it's had its ups and downs. And, you know, like I said, there, there's some years where it's over in the first quarter and, uh, some years there's a lot of drama in the fourth or overtime. So, um, but I do, I mean, that's, that's the litmus game and as it should be. Yeah. And like you said, it's forever changing. So a result from two years ago will not have any bearing on potentially 2024, 2025. Uh, but, players come and go. Yeah. Coaches stay, but players come and go. So to wrap this up, I like to ask every writer what their perspective on the outside, because you can, I can ask a Clemson someone on the staff or ask someone that's on campus regularly covering the team. What's your impression of Clemson for the last two years? But I think it's interesting to get somebody who's not constantly covering the team 24 seven has their eyes set on a different program, how they run things. So the last two seasons for Clemson, six losses in two years, they had seven losses from 15 to 20 where they were national championships. I think four of those losses in that stretch came in the postseason. What has it been about Clemson in the last two years that where they've it feels like they've slipped and lost a step? And you see in the offseason Dabo Sweeney adds he fires Streeter, 
the first year offensive coordinator brings in Garrett Riley. There's a lot of attention and there's a lot of excitement that there hasn't been really felt in a while. What is it about Clemson or what have you seen from Clemson the last two years and where can they go to almost reestablish themselves as one of the, the big dogs I put in quotes? You know, obviously I know a lot of people focus on the quarterback position and you know, when DJ Angeli came in for a few games because of Trevor Lawrence having a concussion, he was terrific. You know, and it'll be fascinating to see how he does at Oregon State. But I've also pointed out to, I just don't think Clemson has had that dude at receiver. And, you know, last year I thought they took a positive step where I liked that they had some tight ends who could catch the ball. And I thought um, the kid from Irmo, South Carolina, with Antonio Williams, was able to come in and help in the slot. You know, two years ago, that receiving core was like Bo Collins and a bunch of guys that you didn't know if they were going to make a play. You know, it just didn't have the the oomph, you know. And, you know, I mentioned how Clemson became cool with Sammy Watkins. Well, I mean, you look at who they had at receiver, Watkins and DeAndre Hopkins and T. Higgins and Amari Rogers and, um, you know, even Cornell Powell at the end was a good uh, college receiver. And, uh yeah, I know I'm forgetting somebody else to go with T. Higgins. But, uh, you know, but uh, uh, what, Justin Ross before he got hurt, you know. So, I mean, they had guys, you know, they had real playmakers and NFL studs. And and then it fell off and Ross got hurt. And they didn't, two years ago, that you know, they didn't have an Adam Renfro in the slot. They didn't have really anybody in the, th- in the slot that would scare you. You know, at least last year, Antonio Williams stepped up. You know, I thought the tight ends were good. But, you know, to me, Clemson football is always about having that vertical threat who, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you have to have somebody who can rip off a 60-yard touchdown. State didn't have that wide receiver last year. I don't know if they'll have that receiver this year. You know, the game's harder when you don't have stud receivers. And you can talk about the running backs and you can talk about um, you know, offensive line and inconsistencies at quarterback, but you got to have studs at receiver, you know, and, you know, that's why Ohio State's been dominant and why they keep getting incredible receivers year after year after year. Um, you know, Alabama has a great run of receivers. You know, I think Georgia is starting to get receivers to to come there, but, you know, that that's the glamour position. And uh, defensively, I think Clemson's been fine. Um you know, I thought they recovered well after the secondary got picked on against Wake Forest earlier in the year. Um, made some changes. Uh, you know, linebackers have always been good. You know, I kind of wondered if they could have gotten a little bit more out of Trent Simpson last year, and then he ended up going in the third round where most people thought he was a first-round talent. But uh, he's a kid that, you know, I've followed since his sophomore year at Mallard Creek. You know, defensive line has had some injuries, you know, and that happens in college football. Um, you know, Tyler Davis has missed games, BZ missed games. Um, you know, Xavier Thomas, you know, what didn't become that that superstar that everybody was hoping. Maybe this year he does. But uh, you know, but it, it was an adequate defensive line, you know. But uh it wasn't quite the same as say Christian Wilkins, Dexter Lawrence, and two other defensive ends that all end up getting drafted high. So, you know, so you can see what it's been. You know, and that's that's the beauty of Clemson is that they know what the standard is at each position because they've had great players at each position. But uh, to me, that the the offense has fallen off, and I thought I thought the last two years 
you know, they just didn't have enough playmakers at receiver to go with maybe inconsistency at quarterback. And like I said, I thought DJ like played very well against State. You know, I don't know where it went south. You know, that's for not watching Clemson week in, week out. But in that particular game, he looked like, a, you know, looked like the Dijangle that we thought he was going to be. Um, you know, and then we'll see what happens with, with Kubnik and, and how that goes. But um, but to me, like, you know, it sounds like Clemson is back to getting some stud receivers and recruiting. Um, kid from Texas, kid from Tampa Catholic. So, um, you know, if those guys end up being great players, I'm sure it would make uh, Cade's job easier quarterback or whoever the future quarterbacks are. And that's kind of how I've seen, you know, Clemson, you know, I think they've been fine, but, you know, it always goes back to that standard. You know, I, as I mentioned earlier, state fans are happy. If they win eight, nine games, beat UNC, make it to a bowl game. You know, Clemson fans want to, they want to get to the title game. <laughs> you know, if you're going to get to the title game, you got to have some studs. And that that's kind of how I've seen things from, as an outsider. Yeah, and so that, it's kind of like you said with the NC State offense, we're just going to have to wait and see for the fall for the results to really materialize. And with that, that'll conclude episode 131 of the Man with the Plan podcast in part five of our Clemson football preview series covering NC State with JC Zimball. I want to thank you, JC, for joining the show. And guys, keep on subscribing. You guys have been killing it with this series just in general. It's been a great time to be able to cover the ACC and cover Clemson's football schedule. Guys, thank you so much. For tuning in, subscribe for more. Comment below your impressions of NC State for 2023. Thank you as always. Have a great day and take care.